0: Welcome to Stop Telling and Start Listening with David Cook. If you're frustrated with the way we are speaking or not speaking to each other, if you find yourself easily at odds in your conversations with people, this may be just the show for you. Listen in as David and his guests will help you elevate your communication skills and navigate the tensions present in many conversations today. Now, here is David Cook.
1: Hey, hey, good morning, everybody. This is David Cook. I'm the host of Stop Telling and Start Listening. Thank you so much for joining me today. I have a a very exciting guest today, Um, but before I introduce my guest, I would like to uh, set the tone for this conversation. And the reason is, is because, and if you've looked at any of my uh, promotional feeds before this show, is one of the things that Stop Telling and Start Listening wants to really focus on, and I'm going to be more intentional about it going forward now that I've gotten into a rhythm with my podcast is to dive into subjects that um, can make people uncomfortable. And the reason I say can make people, because it just depends on the audience and the subject and stuff like that. But you know, we have, in our society today, we are challenged with uh, people have a tendency to uh, get on a side of a discussion or an argument and, um, or, or an issue. And as a result, they take a side and there is really no discussion. It's more about arguing who's right or um, defending in a position that they believe to be true or valid. And when we do that, obviously, we're not learning. What we are is advocating and uh, promoting. And that's the last thing I want to do in the show, because what I want to do in the show, selfishly, is learn. I'm on this show to have guests on who can share stories about their life, share stories about the things that they're working on, things that they're passionate about, and teach me some things that I need to know or can learn about whatever it is they're doing or whatever they're passionate about so that now I know them better, but also too, I know whatever it is, um, I'm, I'm, I'm better informed. I'm better, I have a better pr- uh, perspective. I have a better understanding. So that's to tee up today's conversation. Um, uh, before I go on the show with my guest today, because the subject of the matter today is Palestinian human rights. And I have, um, Huweda Araf, um, she is an um, advocate for Palestinian human rights. How I came across Huweda um, was, um, I read an article in the Detroit Papers about a talk that Huweda had given at a high school, um, so a series of talks that she gave at a high school one day in Detroit. And um, obviously, as we if you know anything about history, um, when you talk about the Palestinian Israeli situation in the Middle East. Um, It can be a lightning rod issue and people take sides quickly. And um, so in the situation with the high school and Huweda and the principal of the school, et cetera, et cetera, there was a bit of a firestorm. And I thought, oh, what a great person to have on this show is to talk a little bit about not specifically about Palestinian human rights, but about Huweda's journey, what she's passionate about, what she believes, why she believes it how it influences and defines her decisions, choices, and behaviors, and some of the struggles and challenges that she has as she moves forward to her commitment to bringing um, her passion to reality. Uh, obviously advocating for Palestinian human rights pretty much says what she's doing is she's fighting for the Palestinian people to get a little bit um, more recognition, better treatment, etc. But I'm gonna let her tell you that. So that's the brief, but fast introduction to this show. And I'd just like to say good morning, and welcome to Stop Telling and Start Listening.
2: Thank you, David. It's good to be with you.
1: How did I do on that intro?
2: Not bad. (laughs) Not bad. Um, I think it's a a sad reality, though, what you say in terms of the Palestinian rights uh, being a lightning rod issue. Uh, But it's true in that some people have set their minds in a certain way based a lot on um, identity politics and sometimes just a lot of misinformation. And then they end up uh, steering their their whole perspective on on this issue out of that lens. And it makes it hard for them to listen in term, uh, as to what is really happening and what it, the Palestinian liberation struggle really Uh, is about. And I think that's what also happened when I was speaking at that high school, as you mentioned. I don't know if you wanted to give a little bit more background into what happened there, but I found it uh, really unfortunate, unfortunate what happened. And two administrators of uh, in that school district have since lost their jobs uh, as a result of, you know, me speaking for a few minutes on my experience with racism and discrimination as a Palestinian.
1: Yeah, well, we I do want to talk about that a little bit, um, and for the very reason just that is uh, back to the what you're talking about is um, you know we do this with a lot of things, but in this situation with this particular subject, we have uh, we have a belief or an opinion or there's a there's a set you know code of how we've how we've interpreted the situation, politics, policy, culture, upbringing, whatever it is. And the minute we that subject comes up, you decide how I feel about it instead of saying, oh, what can I, you know, let's why are we talking about this today? And what can I learn? And I do think it was unfortunate. And um, I would say when I read the article, I, um, in my opinion, it was predictable. Um, there was uh, you know, in my cynicism. I know Detroit. I'm from Detroit. I've lived there my whole life, um, except for the time I'm here in Arizona. And I wasn't surprised, but I was disappointed. And so maybe you could talk just a little bit, you know, give everybody a little bit of context for, you know, background on on, on what that was all about and, you know, why we're here today.
2: Sure. So I, a local high school um, in the past few years has had a kind of string of racist incidents which prompted a group of students, they were largely young women of color, to... Um, organize a diversity assembly. So the first year for this diversity assembly was last year and this year was the second year. And the whole purpose of it was to expose the whole student body to different perspectives and to people's experience with racism and discrimination in the hopes of uh, making people more aware of of their actions and the harm that uh, certain acts can, can have. On people, And so this year I, I was invited to be one of the speakers by these students and they specifically contacted me because uh, they know of my history of advocating for Palestinian human rights. And I told them that I could speak about my experience uh, largely in the time that I lived in the occupied Palestinian territory and fighting for Palestinian human rights because uh, a lot of the policies that we were uh, fighting against are are based on a discriminatory uh, system, and they said that that would be perfect. I was one of five speakers uh, on a day where there were four different assemblies, one assembly for each grade, and we each of the speakers spoke for about seven minutes on their personal experience. For me, I, I told the kids that my parents came to this country when, when my mom was about nine months pregnant with me. Uh, because they wanted uh, me to be born in a country where they could give me uh, opportunity that I would know freedom, things that Palestinians didn't have back then when my parents first came and still don't have today living in the occupied Palestinian territory. And so I feel that I grew up with a lot of uh, privileges that most Palestinians don't have. And after I graduated from college, I wanted to do something with the opportunities that I had. And I wanted to learn more and I wanted to contribute to uh, a better life in that region. And so I decided to move to Jerusalem. This is all what I'm telling the students. And I initially worked with a conflict resolution program that worked with kids, uh, Israeli kids and Palestinian kids between the ages of 13 and 16, where they were brought together to learn to know each other, uh, to break down stereotypes and walls of hatred that often build up in the hopes of creating a generation of leaders that could lead the region into a a brighter future. And while that program is all well and good, and it's always good to dialogue, um, I quickly became disillusioned with that program and programs like it, because what it ends up doing is making people just feel good about making a friend on the other side. And it ends up becoming the focus of even supportive organizations and governments that pour a lot of their energies and efforts into just dialogue and not into dismantling the systems that oppress people. And that's what you had here. And that Palestinians consistently uh, being told to uh, dialogue and a lot of these Jewish Israeli students and, and supporters of the program being happy that there is this dialogue happening when Palestinians don't have an issue with Israelis or Jews or historically and even today they have an issue with the fact that Israel occupies and and colonizes them and deprives them of basic rights based on their goal of, of controlling as much land as possible with as little of the native Palestinian people on it as, as possible. And so while these students got to be the, the best of friends that these programs, again, don't do anything to uh, work against the system that continued to oppress Palestinians. So I resigned from that program and co-founded an organization called the International Solidarity Movement. And with that organization, we called on and worked with people from all over the world, no matter what country you came from, what uh, ethnicity, what religion, Uh, to come and stand with the Palestinian people in their liberation struggle. And what I found and what I really stressed to the kids also is a large number of the people who came to work with us and to work with Palestinians in nonviolent protest against what's happening to them were were Jewish, Uh, Jewish Europeans, Jewish Israelis, Jewish Americans, because this is not a religious conflict. It's not a religious conflict. And I wanted the students to understand that. And some of our greatest allies are Jews. Um, And and then I left them with a message that I didn't get into too much detail about what's really happening, but that Palestinians are engaged in a liberation struggle. And the message I left those kids with is just to be kind of conscientious about the fact that people all over the world, no matter what their background, what their religion, what their ethnicity, they all deserve the same rights that we want for ourselves. And if we uh, believe in that and do our utmost in our homes, in our communities. When we go out into the world to, to stand up for that principle, uh, we will, and these students will be uh, doing a lot to contribute to a better future. You know, for my kids and for theirs. So it was a difficult subject, but I thought that I left the kids with a very positive message, and so I was really taken aback by the uproar uh, that was caused by zionist uh parents and and organizations that condemn the school for allowing me to speak because i'm a known activist and they called me like an anti-israel activist and anti-semitic and which is uh, wrong and also it, it it's a problem that we deal with when you speak up about palestinian rights some people want to label you as anti-semitic just to scare you and and shut you up uh when what we're advocating for uh, has nothing to do with anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is a real problem in America and in the world today. And I am vocal um, about the need to fight anti-Semitism, but standing up for Palestinian rights and speaking about it is not anti-Semitic. But that was those were the accusations. And the school was criticized for allowing me to speak. And, you know, the the firestorm continued with now, as I mentioned, uh, two administrators having since lost their jobs over this.
1: Yeah, it's very polarizing. It's interesting, though. I think what you um, one of the things that you talked about that right at the end of your your statement was the whole labeling thing. One of the things that we as a as a society, I'm not I'll just do it because I don't I don't travel the world and as exposed as well as you are internationally. But it seems that we as a society, if we th- if we can throw a label on something that somebody says, you know, that you know, that's you, that's there. You go being a liberal. There you go being a pro-Palestinian person. There you go, being anti-Semitic. What it does is it automatically dismisses my responsibility for having a conversation with you because I've decided that you're already wrong. You're already them. You're already one of those. And it's it's unfortunate because when you do that, throw a label on something, you limit the whole learning experience out of the gate.
2: Yes, that's absolutely true. But I also want to comment on something that you said in your introduction in terms of certain topics making people uncomfortable and this is also something that I heard I hear a lot I also heard in in um, response to you know my talk at the school in that some people were made uncomfortable what responsibility do we have to um, get uncomfortable right because there are systems in place that are oppressive and people that are subject to that oppression are perfectly comfortable with the way it is. But so many people are not. And and when talking about it is wrong because it makes people uncomfortable, then we are just allowing this kind of situation to continue. Like when we talk about even racism in America today, why would it make people uncomfortable? And if it makes people uncomfortable, then maybe we need to get a little bit uncomfortable to make sure that we are doing what we can to eradicate uh, racism in our society. So mm-hmm. that when people say that, uh, maybe I made students uncomfortable, uh, well, maybe people are a little bit too comfortable in in privilege and need to Expose themselves to discomfort to learn about what's going on, learn why other people are in the situation that they're in, learn why other people are struggling or are fighting or are or whatnot. Instead of you know being content with the status quo, just as long as you know you're allowed to stay in your comfort zone. Um, so I, I, how I don't know how this relates to to your program and what you you know you want to do, but sometimes uh, we I, I think that we need to get uncomfortable.
1: Yeah, I'm with you. Well, that's really the premise behind this show is, um, and the funny thing is the name of the title um, is, you know, Stop Telling and Start Listening, but there is a message um, that I want to share. And obviously, it sounds like, hey, I want to tell everybody how I feel about things. So, um, you know, while I'm not, my goal and my mission in life is not to tell you what I believe, um, what it is, is is that my mission and my goal is to demonstrate um, what I believe and that I'm with you 100% is um, if we're going to do if we're going to create any change uh, in our society uh, with anything, you can pick the topic, you can pick the issue. Um, it requires us to go to places that that we don't want to go to, um, because that's the only way we can uh, really truly understand the issue. If I if, if all the if all the um, politicians in Washington D.C. just sat in Washington D.C. and made law. Which they do um, without really connecting with their constituents or with the people that are affected by the the potential law or the rule, whatever policy they're making. What they're doing is they're not really fixing the problem. They're making they're doing something to try to make it better, but they're not really fixing it because they're not getting the information they need. They're not wading into the, the the areas that make them uncomfortable, the stuff that they really don't want to have to talk about or deal with. And that, that avoidance, like you said, that avoidance is unhealthy. It's, yeah. it's, it's just unhealthy. It doesn't solve anything.
2: Yeah. And actually, when you speak about our politicians, um, specifically it, it it's all, all the more poignant because of the way, you know, our campaign finance system works and our political system works where, yeah, many politicians feel they actually don't even have to connect with the people because they're fine, um, doing what those that pay the big bucks and donate donate to their campaigns uh, want. And that's a big issue uh, in, in terms of also struggling for representation here and making sure that all our voices are equal, whether we have big dollars to donate to those that represent us or not. Um, so that's a, a, a whole nother issue. But yes, the those that represent us and even us individuals living in the society and wanting to have a more um a gentle, respectful, uh loving, peaceful society need to go in places that that make us might make us uncomfortable in order to better understand. I agree with you wholeheartedly.
1: Yeah. And but it's it's also, you know, for for some people it is a matter of personality. Um, you know, I'm I'm the kind of guy that can go into a situation. In fact, I kind of jokingly say to people that, you know, I'm all right being a disruptor. You know, put yeah. me in a place where um where disruption occurs either because something i'm doing or i'm in disruption i'm okay there but you know there are people who like things organized they like it you know they don't you know like uh, i think it was a quote in the movie parenthood um where uh steve martin said i think his name the comedian steve martin he said um i hate um i hate life you know i I hate when life is messy because it's so messy i'm thinking that's perfect. That's exactly what it is. It is messy. It's not designed to be easy and clean and perfect. And, um, there was a, a, when I, we were talking about this, there was a saying that popped in my mind and I've used it before in the show. It's called adversity teaches us lessons. We wouldn't be willing to teach ourselves. Mm-hmm. And what, what that's really saying is, you know, there's places we don't want to go, but sometimes we get put there and those are the best lessons in this situation um because we don't you know I don't um I'm not I probably likely never to get thrown into the um Palestinian Israeli conflict like you are right but um I so I seek it out I'm a crazy guy I seek it out but you know the, the reality is is that you know a lot of people want things clean they want it easy they want it simple they surround themselves with people that make them feel safe that make them feel right that and all that stuff and yeah you know you can do that but um the 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 walls that you're using to protect yourself don't don't doesn't mean the problem goes away it just means that you found a way to pretend it doesn't exist
2: yeah no that's true and i think that um while there are a lot of things you know a, a lot of problems around the world and certainly people here have enough of their own so paying attention to something that's happening thousands of miles away might seem like Uh, Maybe something I don't have time for or I'm not interested in, but with the United States specifically, I believe that there is a responsibility because so much of what is happening to an entire people is enabled by the United States, both because we give so much of our tax dollars, our government sends a minimum of $3.8 billion of our tax money, which amounts to over like $10 million a day to the Israeli military, allowing it to, to do what it does. And then when the United Nations tries to take any kind of action to you know, pass a resolution to condemn what Israel is doing, the United States blocks it. So mm-hmm. we, the United States is an enabler. And what is happening in Palestine is really, and, and it's not just because I'm a human rights lawyer or Palestinian, but it's a crime against humanity. Uh, we've in the past uh, three years, we've had three major human rights organizations—one in Israeli human rights organizations, but Amnesty International and the, and the biggest human rights organization in the United States, Human Rights Watch, uh, all say that Israel is committing the crime of apartheid, which is a crime against humanity. We all know now, after the fact, you know what that apartheid was wrong in South Africa, right? And um, you know, we—it's kind of easy after the fact to to say like, oh yeah, I would have been against that. But the truth of the matter is, the United States did not take a strong stand against apartheid for a long time. Uh, for decades, it, the South Africans struggled to to dismantle apartheid, and that's kind of what's happening today. I mean, you have Palestinians have been saying this is a crime, this is apartheid for for decades, but recently these. Big human rights organizations have come out with uh, hundreds of pages of of reports, facts, and legal analysis saying these are crimes against humanity. And what we see is that the United States government wants to dispute that or or at least turn a blind eye to it and continue to fund it. Uh, But American citizens, as taxpayers, as those electing those who represent us, when we know that our money is going to fund something that is a crime against humanity, are we okay with that? I mean, we might not know all the details, but we should know that we don't want our tax dollars going to fund these kinds of crimes. And that's what's happening. So while I, again, I I perfectly understand um, so many things happening around you that there's only so many things that you can turn your attention to. With this specifically, um, there is a level of complicity uh, because... It, these are the representatives we elect and this is the money that we are paying into uh, into what's happening
1: mm-hmm. yeah that's really interesting you know that's uh the long shadow of the United States on other people's uh um policies right yeah <laughs> we we've done a good job as that as a country um there's things that you know, it's, it's kind of like just like the uh you know the the tragedy with the submarine it has nothing to do with the United States but The tragedy with that submarine last week, you know, five people um, gone missing in a sub and um, chasing down the Titanic and then 700 people in a boat in the Mediterranean um, drowning or the boat was sinking and nobody rescuing them and helping them out. It's kind of like, you know, how do you choose how do you choose your priorities? You know. And good. You were going to say something. Go ahead.
2: Yeah, no, I was just saying in that sometimes this. how we value and of, of life and people's rights based on kind of the color of their skin or their socioeconomic status and whatnot. We, we like to think that's not true, but certain things come to light that, that prove otherwise. And, we did even see that with the, you know, the Russia-Ukraine war with the, all of the Ukrainian uh, refugees and how they were treated in contrast to how refugees from the Middle East and Africa are, are treated. And it it is uh, something that, uh, we, again, we like to not think it is so, but it very much is. And, and we need to work on it. We need to stand up against it, And we need to demand policies that don't Value people's lives again based on the color of their skin, the country they come from, um, or, or how much money they have.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that that goes back to the uh, to a value system, though, right? It's like to declare, you know, what I what my values are. What are my values? Who am I, or as a country, who are we? What do we stand for? What do we believe? What are our values? And once you define or derive your values, the decisions and policies that you make don't have exceptions based on those kind of shifts in criteria. Well, you know, I get it, but that, you know, these people they don't need it or this group doesn't deserve it or whatever. No, 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 no. If our value statement it says all people deserve to be treated with equality, that means all people. It doesn't mean some of the people, some of the time. It means all the people all the time and then therefore the government policy needs to focus on how do we live in integrity to our value?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. And we like to say You know, that the United States is is a beacon of freedom, democracy and human rights. And, um, you know, we fight for that and we support that around the world. But certainly, as we see with with Palestine, Israel, we're not. And as you alluded to, with so many more uh, situations historically and even today, that is not um, that is not always the case. And what drives me is, is wanting that to be the case uh, for people's human rights and for you know uh, my country really to live up to its its potential and its rhetoric Mm
1: -hmm. definitely yeah it's um it's it's a challenge we're we're getting ready to take a break but Hueda, what i was thinking is um when we come back um i want to want to delve into your story a little bit um how you ended up becoming so passionate about this because you um um You know, just kind of interesting on hearing that story, uh, how you how you found yourself really stepping into the space and just being passionate about it. But we're going to take a break. Normally, I haven't I haven't done a very good job with my audience of uh, encouraging you guys to call in or email me if you had questions. I made a special note to do that today. So what I would like to say to you is if you have a question, um, something you'd like me to ask away or a comment that you'd like to share. Um, you can email me at dave at the llc.com. And the cook group is uh, just make sure you put an E on the cook uh, um, that's C O O K E. So it's dave at the cook group Make sure cook with an E is on there. And then we, uh, if you have any comments questions, uh, we can uh, we'll talk uh, with Ueda on the other side of the break about that. But in the meantime, we'll take a break. And when we we'll come back to talk to Hawait a little bit more about how she got to where she is today, a little bit about um, how she became so passionate about this. Stay tuned.
3: Follow Voice America at facebook.com forward slash voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. We are living in a time where a relentless commitment to opinions and beliefs are dividing communities and fracturing crucial relationships. Making ourselves right and those who disagree with us wrong leaves little room for engaging in a constructive learning dialogue. There is little opportunity to change minds, find common ground, or solve complex problems. Those who are not being heard or understood become angry, hurt, lost, isolated, alone, and more. While mental health-related issues are on the rise, Too few know how to safely share their struggles, and far too many don't know how to care about those that do. While it is increasingly frustrating to experience an increase in this communication divide, there is hope, and according to David Cook, there is an answer. The answer lies in how we adjust our communication style and shift our listening behaviors. In his radio show, Stop Telling and Start Listening, Host David Cook introduces his audiences to the power found in creating a safe place for sharing life perspectives and experiences without judgment, criticism, correction, or shame. There are tremendous opportunities in learning to see the world from the eyes of another. Join David on Mondays at 11 Pacific. Discover how shifting your listening behaviors will close the divide that exists between you and others in your community. your
0: world, motivate, change, succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. You're listening to Stop Telling and Start Listening. Have a question for David or his guests? Join us on the show at 888-346-9141. That's 888-346-9141. Or you can email Dave at Dave at the Cook Group LLC.com. Now, back to the show with David.
1: Hey, and we're back. This is Dave Cook with Ueda Araf, and we're talking about Palestinian human rights. We are kind of, but we are also talking about um, what it looks like when we as, as a society or we as individuals wade into uncomfortable subjects, whether we do or we avoid them, like the plague. And um, I just think that, the, you know, when we the way we talked in the first half of the show was I think it was really a, a, a clear message that there are a lot of things that go on in our world today that I understand, recognize that we have really strong opinions about. Um, but I think the other thing that's really interesting is, is that there are some aspects of those conversations or those issues that we avoid um engaging certain people um with those things because it makes us uncomfortable it intimidates us we're not sure we like it we don't want to hear it um whatever and i just think that that's the that would be my takeaway from the first half of the show is is that look before you draw a conclusion about something go into learn mode learn a little bit more about it number two is before you draw a conclusion for the rest of your life that you you know have the answer and have the belief always be willing to say, what more do I need to know? And how does this support who I am and what I stand for? That would be my summary for the first half of the show. What I asked Ueda to to think about on break, and I'm going to come back and ask her right now, is you're you're a passionate advocate for Palestinian human rights. How in the world did you get there?
2: Um, Well, as I mentioned in the first part of the show, um, my parents immigrated to the United States from Palestine. And I, I grew up knowing that, because of their decision uh, to leave their family and their and their homeland to give me and my siblings a a chance to know freedom and to have opportunities in life, uh, I felt a responsibility. I had a opportunities and a privilege that so many Palestinians don't have because millions of Palestinians. Right now are, are displaced, are refugees, or are living under Israeli military occupation. And in some parts of the occupied territories, that is so bad, it's hard to even put into words. For example, like the, the Gaza Strip, most Americans probably don't even know uh, the Gaza Strip, which is a small area of land where 2 million Palestinians are, are really kept in what's equivalent to an open-air prison because Israel controls all exits and entrances. And controls what comes in, what goes out, what food, what what they can export. And so their entire life and economy is controlled by the Israeli military, who essentially wants to get rid of them. And therefore you have uh in 2012 the United Nations said that Gaza, the Gaza Strip would be unlivable by 2020. They don't have potable water. They don't have some of the basics. Um I, I could talk for hours about what's happening in Gaza, but um what then because my parents came to this country and, um, because of that decision, that sacrifice that they made, well, how can I give back? And I moved to Jerusalem. It was supposed to be just for a year to, to learn more and to try to contribute to, um, you know, solving what most people call a conflict, but it's, it's not really a, a conflict. It is, is so much more sinister than that. But seeing also with my own eyes, um, Hardened my resolve that I have to do whatever I can. And it's not just about talking about peace. You can't talk about peace when there are these systems in place that are so um draconian and and deprive people of basic of basic rights. And what I saw in um what what I I came to be a co-founder of the International Solidarity Movement. And that is a movement that works with people from all over the world. Generally, we ask them if they can come and and travel to the occupied Palestinian territory. We we train them in what's happening in the situation and they go and live in Palestinian towns and villages and work with them on different forms of nonviolent protest. Uh, to what Israel's doing, sometimes home demolitions. I mean, Israel's constantly demolishing Palestinian homes, or uprooting their olive trees, or preventing um, movement from one t- place to another. And so, there was for years. I did this kind of organization and and creative kind of uh, resistance, but I was also uh, part of a, and led kind of delegations of people that came from different parts of the world to see what's happening and what I. Um, learned, what I saw is when people see with their own eyes what's happening, it's really hard to turn away. And there are opportunities for people, I mean, even if it's not to go take part in like Palestinian nonviolent resistance, but if they want to just go learn more about what's happening, there's an organization that I was a part of called Eyewitness Palestine that arranges delegations. And once you see what's happening, you cannot turn away. And part of it is not only how uh, oppressive The system is that Palestinians are forced to live under but also like despite that despite the ugliness of it just how warm and inviting uh, Palestinian Palestinians are Uh, and and I've witnessed that over and over again even in a situation where once when I was um, in you know over there in Palestine the Israeli military had all these Palestinian towns and cities under lockdown. P- Palestinians that were found in the streets were being shot dead, like it was that bad. And uh, we were, with the International Solidarity Movement, we're kind of taking advantage of our foreign status, different passports to go out in the streets and bring aid to people that were like locked in their homes and otherwise. And at a certain point, a group of Israeli peace activists wanted to come in and we managed to get them in. And here we are in the streets with Israelis when the whole town is under Israeli military occupation where Palestinians are not able to come out of their homes. And Palestinians are standing at their windows inviting Israeli citizens into their homes because those Israeli citizens came as uh, as equals in, in solidarity and support and not as occupiers, which just goes to show you that, Palestinians don't hate Israelis, don't hate Jews. It's not about that. It's about what the Israeli government has consistently been doing in an effort to take over historic Palestine, get as much land as possible, and push all of the native people out. And Palestinians for decades have been fighting that, have been fighting that ethnic cleansing, have been fighting that expulsion. And in the West, specifically in the United States, for a long time, and when I was growing up, and it still exists today, though it's gotten a little bit better Palestinians are demonized. We are dehumanized. We are called terrorists for resisting, for wanting to be, stay and live on, on our lands of our parents, our forefathers. Um, any kind of Palestinian resistance is labeled as terrorism as you know, we continue to see like Israel as the underdog. Uh, again, that has been changing. As I mentioned previously, we have major human rights organizations that have come out and said, Israel is committing the crime of apartheid, and and this must end. We must devote our resources to making sure that this this ends. But the uh, the combination of that seeing with my own eyes what's happening, seeing Palestinians being expelled, their homes being demolished and being brutalized, and then seeing how we are reported on in the United States and knowing that U.S. tax dollars go to underwrite and support this, it just stirred something in me that I can't. I can't put to sleep. And I would bet that if any of your listeners uh took me up kind of on an offer to go see what's happening with your own eyes, you'd you'd be stirred in the same way. Wow. We like to ask ourselves, you know, what would we have done if we were alive during the time of the Holocaust or if mm-hmm. we were, you know, for the younger generation during the civil rights movement, what would I have done? Would I have been silent? Would I have been an activist? Would I have spoken up? Well, you know, you have this situation that's happening today that is horrific. What
1: are you doing about it? Hmm. Kind of reminds me of, uh, of the scene in the movie Charlie Wilson's War, where Tom Hanks uh, is uh, is challenged by the Pakistani president to go to the uh, Afghan refugee camps in Pakistan. Up until then, he had no idea what was happening in the 19, you know, in that, around 1980 with the Russian invasion of Afghanistan. But the guy says, you got to see for yourself these people, what's being done to them and he was like okay i guess i'll go cuz he was you know sent on a mission to to learn more about it and he went from being relatively ignorant and indifferent to passionately embracing the cause because he saw for his own eyes what was really going on and i think that's what your that's your challenge to to all of us is you know seek out the alternative truth because there's more to the story than than we're getting and there's plenty of opportunities for us to find you know, get get the you know the 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 full picture provided. We we head in that direction.
2: Yep, absolutely. And what is, um, you know, I said things were getting a little bit better in terms of how Palestinians are portrayed, but when we look at our um, government and our representatives, it's still it's it's mind boggling. Um, but maybe not so much again when we consider how our campaign finance system works and. Um uh, we have one representative Betty McCollum um, who for the past um six to eight years, I forget exactly, has been introducing a resolution each new Congress that saying that US tax dollars should not go, because we give obviously Israel $3.8 billion a year. That money should not be used to torture, abuse. And, and imprison children, Palestinian children in Israeli's military system, because the Palestinians are governed by Israel's military system. And about 700 Palestinian kids are, are arrested, usually dragged from their homes in the middle of the night, as young as 12. And they don't have any due process rights. They're interrogated without parents or lawyers. They are, um, again, processed through a system that gives no due process rights and then held for long periods of time, abused, sometimes tortured, this bill says no U.S. tax dollars should go towards that, Israel's abuse and and, um, imprisonment of Palestinian children. And every time it is introduced, it doesn't manage to gain more than about 30 co-signers out of our whole, you know, Congress. Out of 435, if we're just looking at the U.S. House, members of the U.S. House, In what other or for what other people would we not uh, say, of course, U.S. tax laws should not be used to torture and imprison kids? Like, of course not. But when it comes to Palestinian kids, that is supposedly um, it's not the no brainer. It should be. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that is While I've said it's gotten a little bit better here with in terms of how Palestinians are portrayed. um, We still got a long way to go, especially when we're talking about the U.S. Congress and and the U.S.
1: Yeah, well, you know, and I realized that you know we said this at the beginning, you know, early in the show is that um in this day and age um lobbyists have a lot more influence than the uh the conventional traditional American citizen. But um the path, you obviously the the path to least resistance is not dealing with it because for the most part, I wish I and I don't know if you have a statistic on this, but when it comes to pro-Palestinian or pro-Israeli, what is our country is like? Seventy percent in favor of um, protecting and funding and supporting and all that stuff is Israel. Isn't that kind of like the number, the data? I don't, and I'm I'm guessing, but you know, maybe you know what the stat is.
2: Yeah, you know, history it we the, the country was and, and public sentiment used to be a lot more pro-Israel and that is a result of kind of the mainstream media and the information that we've been fed the misinformation that we've been fed for so long but with the um you know now social media people can communicate and have access to information uh in you know in different ways and we're not kind of beholden to just the uh mainstream media and the censors that are put on that Uh, people have been getting more information. And so public sentiment has been shifting. Now, uh, in terms of overall, it's about even a probably slightly still shifts to kind of like pro-Israel, but it also breaks down on party lines. So for example, if you look at the most recent uh, poll I saw was amongst Democrats. And for the first time, more Democrats sympathize with palestinians than with israel and it was it was a big shift it was something like 48 or 49 percent sympathize more with palestinians to about 36 percent sympathize more with israel that's amongst those who identified as democrats republicans still majority with israel and then when you just take it overall it's um it's starting to balance out but more slightly again Mm. uh, leaning towards Israel. But I expect that again to I know that is going to continue to shift because what Israel is doing once people have the right information, it just cannot be justified. It can and it's it's horrible that our media doesn't cover it better. For example, for the in the last week there have been close to 85, more than 85 attacks in the past week alone by Israeli fanatic, like religious fanatic settlers on Palestinian communities, they've been burning homes and orchards and trees. These are armed um, Jewish Israeli settlers that live on confiscated land and that are funded and supported by the Israeli government. And you have right-wing Israeli ministers calling for more of this and supporting this. These are Mm -hmm. like pogroms, uh, genocidal policies uh, that are taking place. And while the United States has expressed, you know, quote, unquote, concern and, and have condemned it, our response isn't strong enough that we can't tolerate this. We should not tolerate this. And again, your listeners probably haven't heard this in, in the media because it's not covered the way um, the way it should be.
1: Right. Well, it's not <laughs> it's not popular. Um And I, you know, back, it's kind of interesting because we could, we could spend a lot of time talking about the media, but the media, you know, today isn't necessarily uh, an informational source. I think like what you said is, and I don't know how you, how you get your information, but I tell people, I said, I read about three newspapers a day and from a raw, you know, Depends on how you want to label. Sure, they're probably if I de- if I decided that all all media is liberal, then I'm reading liberal newspapers. But you know, I read the Wall Street Journal, I read the Washington Post, I read the Troy Free Press, and I read all the same stories. And from that, I, I say, okay, now I have my story. But the truth of the matter is, is that you know, it's it's not the stories, it's the articles. You know, the, that provide a story about something, a very specific topic or subject, over a period of time. That takes time to read. Not everybody has time to read anymore, which is unfortunately, you know. But we have a lot of time to, uh, you know, debate stuff <laughs> without being informed. Um, you know, so it is a it is a challenge. But you know, as just looking at my time because I don't want time to get away. But what is your biggest frustration right now as you do the work that you're doing? What's your biggest obstacle?
2: Um, gosh, uh, there. Ah, there is a a lot certainly, but right. um, I would say we need, uh, in order to see, like Israelis and Palestinians, Jews, Christians, Muslims, everyone in this small area of land that's known as like Israel slash Palestine, get to a day where everyone can live as as equals and with their rights respected and not discriminated against. We need the United States government to exercise the influence that it has in a positive way. And when I was, I lived in the occupied territories for for years and doing kind of solidarity work. And while Palestinians there are very appreciative of it, they know and they would encourage Americans to go back home and tell your people, tell your government what's really happening. Because as I mentioned earlier, So many of our tax dollars go to supporting Israel and also the other policies um, and the other actions of the United States government in terms of shielding Israel from accountability. So Israel wouldn't be able to do what it's doing if it didn't have the unwavering support of the United States. We have to change that. And it is kind of slow and frustrating as, you know, the United States at best will kind of talk about both sides need to come to a negotiating table and meet. how, like I said, dialogue is always nice, but you can't expect, you know, and the Israeli government and the movement that is behind it, that ideologically believes that this land, that it belongs to them and all of the native people that were on it before the state of Israel was created need to be expelled or otherwise annihilated. Their leaders say it clearly outright. They don't hide it. So to say that Palestinians, in you know, to make any progress, need to just negotiate with a state that has all of the military power uh, against a largely defenseless people, uh, it doesn't work that way there needs to be sanctions there needs to be consequences on israel for what it does and you can't treat the the two sides as if they're equal and they can negotiate at the negotiating table you have an occupied oppressed colonized people who want their freedom against one of the most powerful militaries in the world backed by the united states and so what's most frustrating is kind of um Dealing with that, and then when Palestinians use various forms of resistance solidarity, Palestinians call on people to engage in uh, boycotts of Israel or divesting. Like one of the most powerful movements that helped bring down or dismantle apartheid in South Africa was the anti-apartheid uh, divestment movement, and so Palestinians have a similar uh, call. And thirty-three states in the United States have passed. Uh, laws, basically sanctioning anyone that would support boycotting or divesting Israel from mm-hmm. Israel. You can, you know, boycott U.S. states. You can boycott anything else. But our politicians believe that boycotting Israel until Israel respects human rights is an action that is sanctionable. That is outrageous. That is a a um, attack on kind of my my free speech and my what kind of political mm-hmm. rights. And this usually passes under the radar. I bet most Americans don't even know that if they express support or engage in a boycott of Israel, they could be uh, sanctioned, lose jobs, et cetera, uh, by the state. And Michigan is one of those states. I forget, I think Arizona might be uh, one of them also. Uh, mm. so dealing with that uh, kind of mentality that, that says that Palestinians only option only option is to negotiate with the state that pretty much wants to annihilate them. Uh, is is what we have, and not, for example, supporting Palestinian legitimate uh, resistance, supporting uh, boycotts. We should be hailing and supporting these efforts of Palestinian civil society, and instead, kind of, we're um, criminalizing and penalizing them. the United States. And that comes back to, I think if more Americans knew what was happening, what the pro-Israel lobby was pushing behind closed doors uh, with their influence on politicians, uh, we wouldn't stand for it. But there's not enough information getting out. And so I'm actually thankful that um, the opportunity to to speak a little bit here, but it is is very pervasive and um, it's still an uphill battle. But I do believe with again social media and other ways of communicating and just if one more person learns and shares it with some someone else we will get to a point where we will know we will know that for decades what this country what was supporting and what was happening while we were kind of silent um was wrong and that gives me a little bit of comfort uh, during kind of uh, difficult days just a few weeks ago a friend of mine there their two-year-old son was shot dead by an Israeli soldier. The father was putting his son in the car to go to uh, celebrate an aunt's birthday. And Israeli soldiers kind of occupying their land, fired at their car. He was in Uh a coma for, for a couple of days and then he succumbed to his wounds. And this is like daily, and these are people I know, this is happening on a regular basis, but as difficult as it is, I have to hold on to the belief that one day the world will know that what was happening while we were kind of silent was wrong and, and it was criminal and there will be a, um better days ahead
1: what is it it is a, it is a uh, and i'm just looking at my time we're gonna we're gonna run out of time so um you know i, don't, I just want to say thank you for being on on the on the show and i think i'm gonna have you back on down the road uh because i this is a this is a fascinating subject i studied um uh, my major in high school or in college was political science, and I was in big into international studies. And I was fascinated back then in the '70s with the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. And you know, it's this isn't something that's been going on since Israel was formed. This has been a geographic battle for centuries. Correct.
2: Um, somewhat, but I know that's a the, long... The,
1: the, the, the intensity is different and the consequences are larger, but it's been a, it's been a geographic battle all along, right?
2: Oh, uh, yeah, there is something to that. But when we look at what is, what is required of today, it is a, a situation where we look past and we're not granting uh, rights based on ethnicity and religion Uh, And that's what Palestinians are struggling for, which is, you know, as we end, I will say again, this is not a religious uh, conflict. And some of our biggest advocates uh, are Jews. And, uh, and therefore, it that's what I ask people to kind of look at as they want to learn more, there are sources, but anyone that tries to paint this as like a historically religious kind of conflict and animosity that we'll never get over is, is wrong. It's, Um, There are some complexity, but in another way, it's very simple. There's a very oppressive system in place, and it needs to be dismantled for all people's human rights to be respected.
1: There you go. All right. We just ran out of time, but, you know, Huayda, thank you so much for being on the show. I appreciate your time. And for everybody else who just sat in and listened to this, just remember, this is a perfect example of taking some time to open up your heart, your ears, your mind, and explore Um, the learning opportunity in certain situations, because once you open your ears and start listening, everything changes. Until next week, have a great week. And remember, once you start listening, everything changes.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Stop Telling and Start Listening. We hope you've picked up on some useful ideas to help you enhance your conversational skills. Until we listen again, have a beautiful week.